Hey, it's Michelangelo Caruso. Welcome to the Talk To Me podcast. Um, my guest today is a new buddy of mine, Hal Becker. How are you, Hal? I'm good. How about you, Michael? I'm good. Thanks for doing this, man. Before we get started, I want to remind everybody, if you're watching the video version of this interview, you can listen to all of the audio versions on the podcast platform. You can find it on Podbean, Podbean, iTunes, all of the, uh, all the biggies. And if you're listening to the podcast today, you can watch the video version. And Hal's a good looking man. So today's the one you want to watch on YouTube. And subscribe to the Michelangelo YouTube channel, if you would, because uh, if you click that silver bell, you'll be notified of all new videos. Hal, we met in, a, in an odd way, man. We're both fans of Wally Reyes Jr. And I see the drum kit behind you. I first thought that was a double kick drum, but I think they're too far apart to be double kick. Two sets I have when I, I learn by being visual. So when I have instructor come over, let's split the song, let's put it, you know, play it together. I watch you, you watch me, make me better. Oh, That's cool. what the second That's kit cool. is for. And in music came late to you in life. You've only been drumming a little while? Well, I've been drumming since I was 14 and I bought those drums in 68. You can shout there, I was born 54, but um, I was always a crappy drummer. And then um, when I, like you, working, I wanted to get slow down and get off the road. I decided to start a band. And if I started my own band, they can't kick me out because I own the name, the website. And because I've been kicked out of every band I've ever been in. And then I thought, you know, I'll take lessons, raise your own bar. Lindsey Buckingham thought that was going to be true for him. <laughs> yeah, well, look what happened. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was an odd deal. And Pete Best, speaking of drummers, I don't think he was an original member. But yeah, Pete was Best was the original one. The uh, they, I mean, yes, they were the, the three. They added him because they needed a backbeat. And then they met Ringo in Hamburg and the rest was history. So Yeah, yeah. And you know, another famous drummer, Danny Seraphine, speaking of I, Chicago, Yes, I do know Danny. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Also uh, either asked to leave or something happened. I'm not sure. Yeah, they had a falling out. <laughs> These are long arrangements. They're like marriages and like marriages, even marriages that you have a lot of money on, you know, that couple belongs together. Stuff yeah. happens in the course of 10, 20, 50 years. Chicago's you know, been together 50 years now. And I told you, I'm kind of new to the band thing, but I came up with a new word with the band and I call it family. Because if we're playing 50 times a year, I'm with my band members more than I am my family or friends on the weekends. Yeah. And with the band, I just had two rules, two simple rules. I don't do drama. I don't do drama. Let's just have fun. Yeah. And if you can put all the egos aside and work together, it's a blast. Yeah, I like that rule. My, my second rule is if it smells like drama, it's drama. Because yeah. uh, people have a, uh, an incredibly high threshold for it. And they get into that drama right. airspace and that's normal for them. They actually like being ratcheted up. Yep. I'm like you, man. I'm cool. I'm zen. Yeah. And, and so my, my breaker switch goes off like four hours before the ever, other person's goes off. So I like, I like that. And if it was my rule, I'd be the guy to determine whether it smelled like drama. Yeah. So you found some good cats and people that you can coexist with? Uh, well, I, I, I started like a business. I thought, I'll, you know, if I start this band, I'm going to do it like get an LLC, get a corporation. And then like any great leader, I'm not saying I'm a great leader, but learning from great leaders, surround yourself with people that are much, much better than you. Yeah. So I found the best talent. We've already had to let two people go, but the seven of us have been together for 10 years nice. and we truly, truly like each other. Yeah. And, um, you know, there's no smirking. There's nobody mad at each other. If we make a mistake, we cover for each other. And, yeah. and as long as you... Look, it's $9.48 an hour. So if I'm making that kind of money, I want to have fun. <laughs> yeah, you bet. Uh, so Wally Reyes Jr., just to fill everybody in, is the current drummer for Chicago. He's not the founding drummer. He's not even the second drummer because he followed a guy by the name of Tris Imboden. Do you know Tris? I don't know him. I, I mean, I'm, you know, I watch, I, I'm a fan of Tris by watching all the videos and seeing him in concert, but yeah. I don't know him. Uh, fabulous group. So I had interviewed uh, Wally for the podcast. And if you, if you haven't seen it yet, everybody, uh, Wally Reyes Jr. is just a classy guy. And he's very Great interesting, interview. I thought, Hal, because he's from Cuba. Uh, he also plays percussion. He's a true team player. He doesn't care if he's getting the spotlight. He wants to do the right job for the right band. I was really taken by his genuine personality. 
Andy, you're in the position. I mean, he was the percussionist that had an audition interview for the position. It's like a journeyman. Yeah. Because he played so long with Santana. Uh, he did a lot of time with Steve Winwood. Yep. Yeah, like he's in prison. He did time with Steve Winwood. And, um, and uh, he drummed for, like you say, a percussion for Chicago for a lot of years. And then when Tris left, they kind of shuffled him over. And I think they brought his brother in to, percu to be percussionist. I'm not sure. I don't want to make something up. I heard that, but I'm not sure. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Very musical family. Anyway, uh, it's funny how people come together. And then we got connected and I was really taken with you and your story. I love the music piece, but I really love what happened to you in the front part of your life. You have a very, very unusual little uh, distinction on your CV. Uh, I don't know how many salespeople there are in the United States at any given time. I don't even know how many salespeople there are at a giant company like Xerox, but I bet you do. Well, supposedly, again, you know, numbers can be played around. Supposedly in America at this point, there's about 18.1 million salespeople. Oh, when okay. I was there, we had 11,000 salespeople, and, but I left in 1980, so it's quite a while ago. So these numbers are sure Xerox numbers. What's that? Xerox salespeople. When I, was, yeah, when I was at Xerox, we had 11,000 salespeople. Okay, very good. I mean, that's a big number. Yeah. Uh, so uh, the, the story is, everybody, that Hal was the number one salesperson at Xerox at age 22. And I thought, man, I got to know about this. Because Hal, I teach presentation skills. I'm in front of a lot of sales teams. And I'm a salesperson myself. I love, I'm a lifelong learner like you are. I want to know the story behind this. And I thought it would be really interesting to talk to you. We're, we're going to get into... Uh, sales maxims and things that you believe that make a good salesperson. Um, but before we do that, I want to talk about persuasion in general, because I think persuasion, I read something recently that, that it's a lot easier to persuade people with fear than it is, say, kindness. And it seems to me that, that the professional persuaders are tapping into fear more and more often these days. I'm thinking in particular here in an election year, about politicians, even at the regional level here in Michigan. Um, oh, wow. Are you kidding with the news? Yeah. The negative <laughs> governor. Yeah, yeah. Well, they just tried to kidnap the, uh, there governor. was a plot to kidnap the Michigan yeah. governor. But I was even talking about local politics where the lady running for the Board of Education, they're running negative ads about her like she's some sort of uh, uh, Hitler reincarnate. And mind you, she can be. I don't really know. I, I, I just moved to this city. But it just right. seems to me that everything is really, really dramatic now. Um, and I know that sometimes fear is used in sales. Are you a fan? Is it ever appropriate to use fear? You know, every sales trainer, my opinion, has got their own package, their own style, their own way of doing things. But the science of it goes back thousands of years. In fact, if I tell people, if you're in a bookstore and you see any of my sales books and you see this other guy's sales book, buy his. It's better and it's cheaper. And it was written in 1936 by Dale Carnegie how to call, called how to, uh, how to Win Friends and Influence People. Yes. My, my thought process, my, my vision, my being has always been, which every other sales trainer agrees with as well, question-based selling. So I kind of spin it the opposite, where to me to be a real pro, I mean, a real pro, you've got to go to a different level. You know, I mean, I tell people, would you go to a self-taught doctor? Of course not. But most salespeople are self-taught. So the two most important drivers, if you're doing psychological profiling, you know, you're taking a test before you hire that salesperson if you're in management. The two most important uh, elements to me is number one, desire, because you can't force someone to want to make more sales calls, whether it's new business or existing clients. But the opposite, number two is high empathy. And when you put the customer first, and always put the customer first, like a good parent, a good friend, yeah. a good spouse, you start to build relationships. Yeah. So I've never, ever taught fear, taught games, taught, it just your job, when you walk out of a client's office, you're on the phone with them, or you're doing a Zoom, do you know more about them, or do they know more about you? Right. And it's a conversation. So I have always gone away from um, what's happening now, 
to the fundamentals of basically Maslow's hierarchy of needs. What gets us to buy? What motivates us? What do we look for? Right. Um, two quick examples of fear-based selling for anybody that's watching and can't think of what we're talking about. Uh, fear-based selling is sometimes called selling in the shadows where you would try to uh, uh, dissuade, right? The opposite of persuade, dissuade somebody from buying from your competitor because you have to worry about the competitor. That's called selling in the shadows. You're planting that element of fear so that they buy from you. Another example you'll love, I don't know if you're in the, what, what floor of your house are you in right now? We, well, we have a, a two floor house, but this is a walkout. So I'm in the basement, but it's a walkout. So. Yeah, yeah. I thought I saw an overhead window earlier. So yeah, there's a window uh, here and a door over there. So, yeah. so I was buying uh, in the market for waterproofing for my basement many, many years ago. And the guy came over and uh, uh, I'm taking him over to the crack on the wall that I need him to assess. But I notice he's, he's taking in what's in the basement <laughs> a little bit too much interest over there from my radar. And, and, then, and then we got into the presentation a bit and he's assessing it and he's writing some things down. And eventually I find out why he was paying attention to what was on the floor because he says, you know, uh, Mr. Caruso, it looks like you, you, have, uh, you keep a lot of things in the basement. Yeah, and one of those rhetorical questions. I'm, I'm like, yeah, what's your point? And he says, some of them are valuable. And I see where he's going now. And I say, well, yeah, I mean, I got stuff in there for my mom. It's very, his sentimental value it can never be replaced. And he knew right where he was going. As soon as that happened, he was going to sell me on the fear that if he didn't, if I didn't have him fix my basement right now, ASAP, I was going to lose, you know, those family heirlooms. Right. And I don't blame people for introducing that concept, but he drilled down on it. His whole thing was fear-based selling. He didn't have another tool in the toolbox. Did you buy from him? No, hell no. <laughs> I, I even terminated the meeting quickly. Right. You know, I didn't. I didn't uh, consider him as a reasonable quote. I felt like I couldn't trust him after that. And you, you said the big word, trust. Yeah. What people want at the end of the day is a competitive price and to trust you. So again, the style that I've always trained for the three plus decades is salespeople want to come in and jump right to the future and sell you something. Right. I think the great salespeople start with the past and ask you questions. So like, for instance, we'll use your house. How long have you been here? Um, where'd you live beforehand? Have you ever had water in the basement before? Um, tell me about your, all the things I see are gorgeous. Are they of value to you? Yeah. Would it bother you if you had a flood? What would you do if you had? So I'm just going to take you from past to present. We're not even going to talk future. I mean, future yet. And this is going to sound really weird, not to you, to people listening. Great salespeople don't have to close. Yeah. If you've asked all the questions, the sale is implied and yeah. people don't want to be pressured. They want to trust you. And it's kind of like a date, you know, your first date. If you just talk about yourself, the woman's going to think, or the man, they're going to say, loser, loser, loser. Just ask questions and have a conversation and be real. Yeah. I'm I don't know if you me. feel the same thing, Michael. I'm but, smiling because I do. Uh, but I tell my friends, I can't believe I get paid money to teach common sense. Yeah. But there's something about, uh, human nature where we want to, uh, I wouldn't say it's always ego, but we always want to be the play, you know, the playmaker. We want to be the one to make things happen. This whole idea of I have to close you is my ego or my, uh, back to the word ego again, maybe that is the best word, that somehow I have to make this happen. Whereas if, if, you, if, you, if the conversation is organic and you hit all of your marks, like they say in acting, it, the close is organic. It happens by itself. The customer Absolutely. says, when can I order? Or do you take a check? Or what, do you take Visa, right? right. So uh, I'm with you. And I loved your speed thing too. I'd never heard it put, put quite that way that, that most people sell. How did you say the future and the past? Start with the past, like a doctor. Tell me yeah, about most your Most salespeople are selling the future. In the future, right. Yes. I want to stay, start with the past, present. We might not even get to future. Yeah. Uh, and the way I say it is um, a lot of salespeople are in a hurry to close, you know, kill the fresh meat, throw it over the fence, go get some more fresh meat. They're in a hurry. Yep. And I always tell salespeople sell slower. And I got that tip golfing of all things. Fun thing. It's fun trading with you today. Thank you. I'm golfing and I'm, I'm, I'm not doing well. And there's etiquette on the golf course. You swing. I'm a golfer. Yeah. So, you know, you know, the etiquette, you're not supposed to offer unsolicited advice 
to anybody in the foursome. It's right. considered to be bad etiquette. Yeah. So I'm spraying, man. I'm I'm uh, fade, draw. You're right-handed. <laughs> I'm invite. I'm inventing verbs as I golf. You know, for ways that you can hit the ball. And um, I finally, about the fourth hole, one of my mates says to me, uh, "Would you Would you like a tip? Because he Because he can't just give it to me without right. permission." And I'm like, "What took you so long? I've been screwing it up for four holes now." He starts laughing, and that's when he gave me the famous tip to swing slower. Right. It's amazing. Yeah. It, the slower the swing, the farther the ball's going to go. Yeah, but it, I mean, for, for anybody that's watching that doesn't actually golf, I'm not at all convinced that I'm actually swinging the club slower, but I'm trying to swing the club slower, which forces me to focus on other things. So bringing it back to sales, sell slower means stop thinking about closing, right? I'll go a little bit deeper. Sales, it's, it's probably one of the only professionals I've ever seen that is made up of non-professionals. I mean, this is not a made up number. 90% of salespeople have never read a book, never been to a course. So how could they know the science behind it? Then when you take a salesperson and you train them, the great salesperson always makes it about the customer, not about the sale. So when you put the customer first and you're truly finding out about them with high empathy, you have a much better chance of not just closing sales. Now remember, I'm not teaching sales that it's a one and done, how to you know, sell a light bulb and move on, but you're creating a relationship and or if it's a one-shot sale, you want these people to refer you. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't know about you, Michael, I've never trained referral selling because if I'm that, my doctor's never said, hey, you know any sick people I can call or my dentist never said, you know anybody with bad teeth? I want a professional that I have a relationship with that I want to recommend. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've said for a while that, that, that people judge us, they judge us even as salespeople by two sets of signals, verbal and nonverbal. No rocket science there. But the words that we use are important. Um, and salespeople are notorious at wanting to freelance. They, they don't want a script. They don't even want to stay on talking points. They want to go in and wing it. This is my experience doing training. Um, but I heard you in a video one time talking about how Seinfeld, Jerry Seinfeld and George Carlin going back a few more years, these great stand-up comedians, the best of their generations, when, they, when they're working on a 20-minute stand-up bit, they are really looking at which words are the precise words that they need for a certain joke or a setup. How did you come to that analogy about the comedians and and their choice of words? I've always studied, for me, what makes the best orators? Who are the best speakers? Because when you and I speak, we have to get their attention. Rabbis, priests, evangelists, comedians. Because they're naked, having an audience, no notes, and with a stream of consciousness, even someone like Kathy Griffin, you think she's all over the place. She knows exactly where she is. Yeah. And then I remember, I don't know if it was Chris Rock or Jerry Seinfeld, they said they'll walk in a comedy club at two in the morning to practice one line yeah. to see if it works. Yeah. See, look, here's what I'm impressed with you. Let's use you. And I'm going to embarrass you a little bit, but in front of the audience, in front of you, you have a list of questions you prepared. Okay. You can never go through life too prepared, too honest, too genuine, too sincere. So you have your questions you want to ask to get to conduct a great interview. Yep. That's the same thing a salesperson should do. So if I was a sales manager or if sales managers are listening, if you're in the car with a salesperson, when you go on that sales call, your job is to shut up like a coach of a team. And I only recommend you only ask two questions to the rep before you go on the call. Number one, what's your goal? Customer care call, problem, new business. Number two, where are your questions? If they're not written out, we're not going in yet. And I don't care if they're on a cocktail napkin. And here's why. When you have your questions written out like yourself, you get to ask me questions and then you get to think about what you wanna say next. If they're not written down, you're gonna interrupt. And that's why salespeople interrupt all the time because they're thinking of their next thought because we talk at 225 words a minute, roughly, but we think at 500. So that thought, that 275 is filling in our heads and we're not listening to the other person because they want to sell. 
So, yeah. well, the other reason I want people to talk is I want, I think it's a dance and I want them to lead the dance. I don't want to, it's, it's kind of a, uh, what do you call it? A, a, not a mirage. It's a uh, tango. It's an illusion. The okay. illusion is that I'm in control of my sales meeting, but I want the other person to think they're in control. And I get that done. I think a lot of smart salespeople who ask questions get it done by, by, by asking the question and then the other person answers. And then of course they're giving you information back that helps you formulate the next question. Yep. An easy example of this is uh, they, they call it identifying the pain or the, the pain point. I don't like that word, but- people We hear that all the time. It's been around for decades. Yeah. But I wanna know what your problem is if you have a problem that I can help you solve. And I wanna know early, because right. if you don't have any problems, I don't need to stay for it for an hour. Right. I mean, I can stay and shoot the shit for an hour, but I'm not gonna sell you anything. And then I can just dial it back. And a lot of times I'll lob that, well, it's like an egg, you know, you're tossing the egg back and forth to see who's gonna catch it. And I'll toss the egg back and I'll say, um, uh, well, if you don't have any problems, uh, I apologize. And that sets up a little exchange. What are you apologizing for? Well, I thought that I was here because you were looking for a vendor or you were looking for a, a good deal on a product. And, and it sounds like you've got the perfect scenario now. And now he's on defense, again, an illusion, to defend his perfect scenario. And what do you think he says? Oh, it's really not that perfect, let me tell you. And then the pen comes out. So I love what, I love this, and it's interesting, so interesting that we're doing this in front of your drum kit because this is about conversational rhythm yeah it's a con exactly i like that term. i gotta write that down conversational <laughs> rhythm i've never heard that before see what's fun about today is i'm gonna walk away learning stuff and you've proven what i always say to everyone else i go a sales trainers we're just repackaging the same information yeah so what you've been saying i just use a couple different words i say selling is and these are terrible words but it's the truth which you've already used the words control and manipulation. My job is to take you wherever I want. Yeah. And how I do that is, uh, here's what's natural. The average six-year-old asks 300 questions a day, nothing new. Average college student, 20. You and I go out tonight. We come home at four in the morning. My wife, if you're married, whatever, your spouse, your significant other, they look at you and go, without even thinking, where were you? Yeah. And I go, out. Well, her next words or his next are going to be where or with who. Yeah. So they have so many more questions without thinking. Your kid wants to go out. Where are you going? Out with who? Friends. What are you going to give them? Here's the Lexus. Take $500. Go have fun. I mean, so in our personal life, we're always asking questions and controlling the situation. Agreed. In sales, we don't. And if you, so all a great salesperson, I, I, I think of this, if you're a construction worker, a great salesperson has a construction belt with only two tools, a big question mark for asking questions and a big L for listening. If you can do those two and stay at a 70-30 rhythm where you're doing 30% of the time you're talking, the other 70% you're listening and then and finding out, I mean, you don't go to your doctor's office, they look at you and go, cholesterol medication. I've got the best cholesterol. I gotta take a look at it. Yeah. Doctors don't sell, their job is to find out about you. Question mark and an L. I thought you said L was for loser earlier. <laughs> yeah, loser for most people, but listening for a salesperson. So. I agree. Yeah. Uh, I, would, uh, I would adjust, as long as we're talking about precise words, um, I would adjust from my camp, manipulation, um, or maybe say it like this, is a manipulation with a capital M and manipulation with a small M. I'm shepherding, I know yeah. you are too. I'm an advocate. I'm not trying to get you to do something that's not in your best interest, but I do need to be, back to that illusion again, illusion of control. I do need to be in charge of my own sales presentation. I've done, you'll like this, I, I did a, uh, a four-year residency with a, a money manager. Active, in, it's called Active Investing, where they're selling you uh, essentially a software program that has buy signals and sells. Right, I'm familiar. And um, 
and uh, I, I do ride-alongs with these cats and I would sit next to them. And uh, I, I, they tell me in advance, we're gonna go in, the meeting's gonna be an hour. And we go in and like 75 minutes later, 90 minutes later, the meeting ends and guess who ended it? The guy across the desk. Yeah. So I don't know if my guy would just sit in there all day if he could, <laughs> you know, but they, they lose their mooring ropes. They lose the conversation. They lose track of time. They lose track of what you said, have a goal, one goal when you go into the meeting. He lost track of his one goal because he had the goal at 45 minutes, but he stays another half an hour. I never understood this. Well, the, the average salesperson, again, without training, which is most of them, really believe the more they talk, yeah. the more the customer is going to like them, yeah. the more endearing they are. It's completely the opposite. Because we're also the customer talks, Yeah. The more the customer talks, the more they like you. Think of it as a date. If you go on a date and all you do is talk about yourself, the other person is going to sit there and go, I'm out of here. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> uh, okay, so let's get to this, uh, this remarkable story. Um, which I, I, I first, uh, I don't know, I must've seen it online when I was checking you out, man. It's a great, <laughs> a great little thing. Um, uh Oh, so I don't want to be embarrassed. <laughs> no, no, this is good. So you became somehow how the number one salesperson at a little company called Xerox, it's not a mom and pop shop, uh, with thousands of salespeople on its payroll at age 22. Now, most people would be delighted to do that at any age. You did it at age 22. I know there's a backstory. What happened? It's a very short backstory. Um, I'm, I'm not a smart guy. Had a 1.8 acumen high school. I think a 2.2 in undergrad. And I couldn't get a job. I was rejected, rejected, rejected. And the guy across the hall from me says, why don't you come work for Xerox? I go, copiers. Ugh, I don't want to do that. I want to sell medical supplies. Anyway, I interviewed at Xerox. After seven interviews, I got hired. So we went through our training. Now, it's funny, today, some people that are watching this are 22 years old. I've had this happen. Hell, what's Xerox? Because it's gone away. It's, it used to be like IBM. Or, you know, now it's, I mean, people, what's a Xerox? So Xerox was a copier company that had most of the market share and, and you use the term Xerox like Kleenex or we use Zoom today. Hey, we'll do a Zoom meeting, which is out of nowhere. It used to be, you know, a virtual meeting. Right. So anyway, I went through the training and I get out and I said, okay, I grew up poor, not devastation poor, but you know, Salvation Army for clothes. My parents, I'm an only child. We rented a two family. So I had a loving family, just we weren't wealthy. And I said, I want to retire by the time I'm 40. Now, when I say retire, not give a crap. You know what I mean? Just do what I want on my terms. So I go to Xerox in this training. I decide I'm going to do something I've never done before. I'm going to apply myself as every teacher told me I should do. Never done that. And I really got into it. And I picked up my first book. I've never read a book except what you were told in school to supposed to. I read the cliff notes, but I never read the book. And I get out of school and I, and, I mean, Xerox training. And I went, wow, this is something. So I focused, I mean, I, when I say focused, I did exactly what they said. And then, and this was the real short, short secret, which was laughable. This November will be 42 years. I'm walking down the aisle at the Doral Country Club and I've never been to a nice hotel. And there's 1200 people applauding and cheering, standing ovation, everybody's 30, 31, 32. I'm 21, you just turned 22. That's your parents' age. So I'm literally walking down the aisle like this, Michael. <laughs> and I'm laughing to myself because they're making a big deal out of this. And like I did some magical thing. Here was my secret that I learned at 22 and I continue to this day. Number one, they told me how to make 10 calls a day. That was my quota. Knock on 10 business doors a day. I said, okay. What's not going to make me money? Getting home early, shopping, golfing, flying, I'm a pilot, uh, playing drums. None of that's going to make me money. What's going to make me money? More rejection. I did 20 calls a day. Knocked on 10 more doors. Takes less than an hour because eight out of 10 are not going to even let you in. So here's the secret. At the end of the week, when everybody had 50 calls, I had 100. At the end of the month, when they had 200, I had 400. I just strolled into this presence club trip 
with 4,800 sales calls, everybody else had 2,400. I didn't do anything smart. It was consistent. So, so I learned my product. All things being equal, you doubled. I doubled my calls. Your prospects and then ostensibly doubled your revenue. Well, what happens when I learn my product, I learn my competition, and if I double my knocking on doors, that might bring more prospects. So I have the chance to have twice as many prospects as someone else. Some days are good, some are bad. Yeah. The joke is this, Michael. At 58 years old, I decided to double my sit-ups, okay? So for the first time in my life, I've got a six-pack. Here's the problem. I have no one to show it to. My wife doesn't care. I'm not cutting the lawn, my shirt off. It's creepy looking, <laughs> but it was the consistency of just doing it that made it fun. Yeah. <laughs> That's it, why that was the only secret. Why don't, uh, this is not tricky math. Why don't more salespeople understand this? Is it a will? You talked about the desire. They lack the desire. They're lazy. Why is, it, why is America overweight? Why is everybody on cholesterol medication? Because we're, we're, we're not creatures of discipline. It's easy to do something else. You know, like my joke is, you know, um, we had a period of time during COVID, you know, and uh, what did you do during COVID? You know, when we had that, oh, you know, I watched a lot of Netflix. I kid around my friends. I said, oh, I learned Mandarin. I learned how to shear a sheep. I learned how to do, uh, install a combustion engine. No, I watched more TV, but, but I wanted to become a better drummer. So I set a goal of 45 minutes a day to practice more than I have I have the time so I can become better. Yeah. That's it. Nice. Discipline. Yeah, no secrets. Discipline with consistency. So Realistic you, discipline. Once you ran your four-minute mile at age 22, uh, and I'm not, I'm not being... Uh, I know what you mean. You know, I, I understand. Yeah. Did you maintain that discipline for the rest of your career and your time at Xerox? Was that like a, a template for success for you? Or... Are you, because some people achieve this thing and then they go, oh, that's all there is to that. Which guy were you? That's a great, you know something? I, I don't think I've ever had anybody ask me that question and thank you. It's a really well thought out question. I'm serious. My first year when I was there, I was 22, we had 11,000 people. You know, I made a lot of money and I created something that was unheard of. I don't think that would to be duplicated again. I don't think you can win the Heisman Trophy two years in a row but my goal is to always be in the 5%, you know, the top yeah, yeah. echelon. So while I was there, I was always determined, driven, and I was in the top 5% before I left. Yeah. Nice. Well, I left, I, and then I wanted to always start my own business because I'm not, I'm, I'm not a good employee. <laughs> a great story, man. That is, that is the kind of story I wish, I think every salesperson wish they could tell, but so many of us, in the industry, uh, we'll spend 10, 20, 30 years selling and never, ever achieve that status. Congratulations. Well, you know, Michael, I, I look at it this way with the band, okay? When I sell the band, as I said, I make, you know, 60 bucks to $100. But if I don't bring in the business, because I'm the director of sales, if I'm not bringing in the, the gigs, who else is? Yeah. So two years ago, remember, we started in 2012. In 2000 and 18, we did 51 jobs. That's a lot of jobs. But I had a knock on door. I'm, and then right now in that in the period of time, October, November, September, all the bands and venues booked for the following year. This is my window. If I don't get in touch with these venues now, you call them up in March, they're going, we don't have any dates available. Yeah. But it's all, you know, it's all about what you want to do, what you can control. I can't control having cancer or heart, you know what I mean? But I can control certain aspects of my life. I can control being a good husband. I can control being a good father. I definitely can control making sales calls for whatever business I'm involved in, so. 100%. You, uh, you mentioned cancer. Uh, I know from a previous call that we had that you had a scare a while back. Tell me. Oh, yeah. yeah. When I was, uh, the, the shortened version, I start this new company called Direct Opinions, which mean nothing to anybody. But if you're taking your car into a dealership and they call to see if you're satisfied after the service, that was my company. So I'm in business three weeks. I felt like I got kicked in the stomach. No big deal. I wait two and a half months, go to the doctor. I get to the, you know, through all the tests and they go, congratulations, you've got 40 tumors in your abdomen, your chest, your brain. And I was stage three and I did spend the next eight and a half months in the hospital going through experimental 
chemo. It was a phase two trial at that time. In fact, Lance Armstrong, I had the exact same doctor, same protocol, but I was 13 years ahead of him before he went through the normal routine that I was the, the uh, you know, a trial subject for. So well, Lance I got had testicular cancer. Where was yours? Start out in your gut? Yeah, it was, it was diagnosed testicular, but it moved its way. Yes, but it, it moved its way up my, all my lymph nodes into your chest. And that's, and, they, and when I, they found that it was already advanced, so. So your big, your big symptom was a pain in the gut. I, well, I, yeah, I felt like my groin, my gut, I just felt like I got kicked in the stomach and the groin. And that was the only symptom, you know, nothing else. And how long ago was this? I was 82 into 83. And so you worked through uh, the stages, remission, and then officially cured, yeah? Well, I, you know, that's a, I don't know how they, yes, there's a 90% cure rate, but are you always cured? I don't know. I know that when you went through, when you read these studies, the long-term studies, it ain't a pretty picture. All the side effects, the things they promised will happen. Yeah. Oh yeah, they happened. So like I have what's called pulmonary fibrosis, which is lung disease or lost hearing or vision, you know, with all this stuff. But look, I've had three friends already die. I got lucky. So every day, you know, if I don't piss off my wife today, it's been a good day. <laughs> well, or as some people say, if you don't piss off your wife today, it'll be tomorrow. You know, every morning I just get up and I say, I'm sorry. She goes, what for? Whatever the hell I do later. <laughs> Next thing. Yeah, that's funny. Uh, uh, you are a good listener, and we said that that's an important skill for um, uh, salespeople. Um, you've also, I wanted to talk about interviewers because I've got a pet peeve right now. Today's interviewers are just terrible. Uh, if you listen to people like, say, Jay Leno, he's off the air now, but on the show, if you watch a, a transcript of him asking questions, he just babbled incomplete sentences and just kind of <laughs> getting through it. Um, and the long form interview is gone. Rogan's made a thing of this now, three hour conversations. And Spotify, by the way, just bought his podcast for a hundred million dollars. Those are, those are athlete numbers. Three hour podcasts, most podcasts are 20 minutes. Who in your book is a good listener? Who's a good interviewer? Well, I'm not, I mean, cause my mind races so much and if, my friends are all, everybody knows I'm a terrible listener. But I thought uh, you had to be a good listener to, to be a good salesperson. Oh, I can preach it, <laughs> but to do it? You, you, did, you did achieve the pantheon in sales. Oh, when you're with friends and family, you know, the people you're closest to, you know how it is. Maybe I'm better, who knows? But I think the king, when you're talking about like Jay Leno, the king of everyone was Johnny Carson. I mean, you know, Johnny was the best in terms of interviews. What was his last name? Johnny Carson, you know, the original, but we've become a bullet point society little by little by little because we have no attention span. Everything is in the moment because of text, emails, voicemails, social media. So in terms of good listeners, the doctor, I mean, I have so many different people I could think of. A doctor would be a great listener. Uh, there's some interviews I'm watching like, um, I'll tell, you who's the, I'll tell you who's the best right now, I think, in the business. Um, what you do, I don't really interview, you do. But I'm watching Howard Stern, um, who's become, went from a shock jock to an amazing, amazing uh, host. And everyone that he interviews, whether it's in their 60s or their 20s, they get off the show and they go, this is one of the best interviews I ever had. Because he doesn't talk to them listens to them I mean, he doesn't talk at them he talks to them yeah so i'm watching anderson cooper on cnn interview howard stern two of the greatest interviewers and they both know the game but they're both listening and they're taking the time they're thinking before they talk um i'll tell you what's fascinating if you really want to study what just came to mind and another one who's re was a really great listener just go online and watch any interview with steve jobs you know, any interview, especially when he was younger, in his 20s and 30s, up to 40s. And, and he's in front of a Mac world, you know, thousands of people and people from the audience are asking him questions. He will literally sit there with dead silence and think about his answer before he answers. 
Yeah, I'll have to look for that because I, I know Steve from speaking. I see all the clips and stuff, but I don't see clips of him listening. Uh, back to Howard Stern, one thing Howard does, keep it in the sales mode for a minute. Um, Howard asks unusual questions. Some would say tawdry. Uh, actually, everyone would say tawdry. But <laughs> it's not just that. It's that he asks questions that nobody else seems to have the right balls to ask and it turned and it makes the conversation somehow more genuine or more yep. coveted or more, yes. more of a prize a trophy prize right yep um you know who else i liked until he, he put stink on himself because he got in trouble with the me too campaign but i thought he was amazing on the air it was charlie rose oh yeah oh yeah because he let people he would talk. ask a question and and and, and he would wait, the other person would stop talking and he's still waiting. And, and there's, my dad used to say that nature abhors a vacuum. I didn't know what he meant until I was 28 years old. Yeah. What he meant was if, if you're not speaking, the other person will keep talking and that's yes. nectar in sales, right? And, and that's why you, know, you have to cut them off sometimes you need sound, but you know, today's world is a soundbite world. Right. But since you like music, if you want to marry those two on Access TV watching Dan Rather interview anybody from Ringo to Slash. He's got an 80-some-year-old person conducting interviews with rock and rollers that have very little in common. Right. But what it is, it's what you've done today. They've done their research. Howard Stern, whether it's a staff or it's himself, he's actually read the book. He's gone to the movie. So he's walking the talk. And so he can have a conversation and go, what we call in sales training, I call going to the second level. Like if I say to you, um, how was your day? Oh, fine. What, what'd you do today? It's like your kids, what'd you do in school? Nothing. Well, what'd you do in first period, second period? Yeah. Or I could flip the interview on you and say, wow, in the corner, I see that um, really cool um, statue of uh, someone wearing armor. Tell me about that. Yeah. So I can turn the interview in a, in a heartbeat on you and you're going to want to tell me about that. I call it uh, digging with a bigger shovel. Yeah, I'm not happy with that shallow answer. I, I'm going to need something a little bit more substantial in order for it to be nutritious. Another thing I'm going to steal from you today. <laughs> Listen, um, I want to talk about uh, this bit that you became famous for. There's all, all kinds of videos on, about it. And, um, and I, I suppose you kind of cultivated it and curated it during your days in selling and then maybe even taught it to some people. But I love the name. It's Snow White and the Six Objections. <laughs> can we can we run them down quick and uh, really quick and do some quick commentary on them? I can do this in less than two minutes. Okay. A sale is a, again. It's a, selling is a science. An art form is the person, the personality. You know, like an artist, Renoir, Picasso, Rembrandt. They have canvas, paint, and brushes, but their styles are different. Okay. You don't just walk into a customer's office and they look at you and go, hey, whatever you're selling, I'm buying. Here's a check. That doesn't happen. So you need objections. And when a customer has objections, the salesperson should go, whoopee. That means there's an interest. And there's only six in the world of sales. So I decided to put a spin on it. There's not seven uh, dwarfs or six. You know, I mean, there's not six or seven. But so I just call it so people can remember it. Okay. The six objections in no specific order whatsoever. Some do with price. Hell, you're too expensive. It's more than I want to spend. It's not in the budget. A second one would be, you know, um, I love our other vendor. It's my cousin. It's my brother-in-law. We're never leaving them. Number three, I hate your company. We dealt with you a long time ago. You ruined my life. Die. <laughs> Number four could be, I'm too busy. Let me think about it. Let me put it on the back burner. Call me after the first. Number five could be, uh, uh, you can't give me what I want. I want shag carpeting with plexiglass in between, whatever. And number six is, I don't make the decisions. Let me talk to my CFO, my CEO, my astrologer, whatever. And then every time you get an objection, forget all the fancy stuff and crap. Just ask a question back. Like, oh, uh, call me after the first. Let me ask a quick question. Or, Do you get busy after the first? Do you have uh, more time during the holidays? Can we set up 10 minutes now, like in November? Yeah. Just ask questions. Well, what I love about this is uh, I've always said sales is like a little bit like a chess game. Do you play? 
No, I'm too stupid. So a lot of people don't play chess, which really <laughs> destroys the analogy. I can't help you if you don't play chess. But the idea of chess, if you think about it like um, checkers is- you can Well, I'm familiar with chess. I'm just not smart enough to play it. That's all. Yeah. With checkers, you can only think one or two moves ahead. But chess right. is more complicated, like a real life conversation. And if you, if you have the ability to think four or five moves ahead, like you have to have in chess, then you're anticipating the six basic objections. Right. And once you're anticipating that, you have the immediate response. You don't have to give these dumbass things like, oh, uh, I can see you you like doing business with your cousin then. Okay. I guess uh, I guess uh, I'll call I'll you later. You. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you have a, you have a, res a ready response and then you can go to work on that objection because guess what? Everybody already has a vendor. Everybody. You know, you mentioned golf. Let's pretend that I'm not, well, let's not pretend, let's do it. I'm terrible in the sand. I'm terrible, okay? So my joke is when we play golf, I don't do sand. <laughs> I'll take it out, because we cheat. We, it depends how much you cheat. But if I took a lesson and they told me, Hal, bring your club over, open the face, swing completely through it, great. But I'm going back to my old style when I play with my friends. But if the pro sat next, stood next to me, put 30 balls in the sand, do it this way, do it this way, do it this way. And around 28, I'm sitting going, okay, I got this. Until you practice something and perfect a habit, then you anticipate, then this is all part of, as you said, the game. It's the yeah. game. And, but you're good at the game because you practiced it. 100%. You know, the line is, it's, it's this. I, I love studying coaches because my, where I spend most of my time is really working with the larger companies and, and setting up the strategies, doing the sales, not just the training, but you know, looking at their whole sales structure. Sales managers is where the chain breaks in every company because a sales manager is the next salesperson who wants to talk and take over the sale. The great coach is on the sidelines taking their players to a higher level of performance. So if, if, the, if, the, if salespeople, I look at them like athletes. The true professional athlete does not want to sit on the bench. They want to play. The salesperson will tell you that they want to play, but they're comfortable on the bench. Look, I never swear, but I have to say it here because it, it's, it's, I don't swear in seminars, but here it's okay. It's just a podcast, but somebody taught me a line a long time ago, and I love the line. Her name was Tasha, and it was one of the best lines I ever heard. She goes, Hal, salespeople are fig jam. They're, most salespeople are fig jam. I go, fig jam? What's fig jam? She goes, oh, it's really easy. Fuck, I'm good. Just ask me. Oh, I love that. I have never seen a salesperson or heard a salesperson in my entire life. I've trained well over 700,000 people say these words. Hey, hell, hey, Michael. Yeah, I'm not that good. Yeah. I well, kind of suck I, at sales. I think part of it is, for me anyway, um, part of it is allowing the other person to have the spotlight. And yes. so by de facto, I'm not going to be all that in, in that interview. I play with this a little bit because I, like you, I have an intriguing past, you know, and so the fact that I played music and um, the fact that um, I've been to the Academy Awards, I've done some pretty cool things. I'll leak that in a way that's intriguing, but never to steal the spotlight. Not overpowering them, exactly. Right. I, I leak that like fish bait, you know. I'm, I'm going to be a good guy for you to have lunch with. You do want to have lunch with me, don't you? You know, so there's always a means to an end. And that's that manipulation that we talked about with a small M. If he doesn't want to go to lunch, great, it's fine. But I never want to steal his spotlight. I want him to be the star of the show right. or her. So I got to flip this on you. Academy Awards, tell me about that, oh, if you don't easy. mind. It was an easy uh, thing. My brother had done some work for the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts and Sciences. And they comped him two tickets. Actually, they comped him four tickets. I don't know what he did for them, but they must have liked him. <laughs> and he asked me and a couple of his mates to go. And it, it, it turns out to be one of those special things. I mean, um, what year? What year? And what was the best picture? Do you remember? Oh, yeah. I remember. Uh, I think it was 1997. But I remember the, the best picture for sure was the Titanic. Because wow. I heard that damn theme song 100 times that night. Yeah. James Cameron had a long speech. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
but it was a it was a great experience. And what's cool about exclusive things like that that you that you can use as fish bait is um, everybody knows somebody who's been to the Super Bowl, but nobody knows anybody who's been to the Academy Awards. You don't even know somebody who knows somebody that's been. Yeah. Because it's a, it's usually by invitation only. There's a lot of industry insiders there. It's a small auditorium. It's not like it's in a big hundred thousand right. uh, seat uh, arena. Yeah. Um, but this has been so fun and so uh, back to the rhythm of conversation again. Um, I think being a better salesperson helps me at cocktail parties. Yes, it does. Because you're aware, you're in the moment trying to make the other per. You know, here's, here's the, what I've always said, Michael. If you're these three things, you're a real pro salesperson. Number one, a reporter. A reporter, when they go to journalism school, not somebody who just comments on an article, they learn the five W's and the H. Who, why, what, where, when, and how. So they're always in question mode. Part two, which we just discussed, they have to be a talk show host. The talk show host is to make the guests shine. That's your job with the customer. Part three is to be the psychologist. You got to read the customer. If they're not interested or they go, hey, I only have a minute. Something came up and the salesperson goes, well, let me rush through it. They're not paying attention. Read the customer. Look for the body language. Look for the tell signs. So if you can merge those three together, you just, we are, we're saying the same thing back and forth. So that's what's been fun. Um, so rapport is interesting because a lot of people, salespeople, you know, uh, look at me kind of a thing. They think rapport is getting the other person to like them. Not in close. Yeah. I think rapport is you knowing that I like you. I've never said it that way before. Yeah. You gave that to me just now. Uh, and then yeah. the, I think the classic dictionary definition of rapport is it's reciprocal. Yeah. But I don't really care if you like me. It would be great. And I think you're eventually going to like me, but I'm in the foot race to make sure that you know that I, I like you. I admire you. I want to work with you. I trust you. Um, I think we're going to do good things together. I, I'm trying to get that message delivered. Fast. Yeah. You know, it's sometimes you win, sometimes you don't, but it's a matter of when you walk out, I, do you know about the customer? You know, I had a, my cousin's a cardiologist we had a real deep conversation. I, I talk about this in one of my sales books, like the first chapter. And he said a line to me that echoed forever. He goes, Hal, as a doctor, sometimes we do things to patients, not for them. I go, what do you mean? He goes, well, does a 90-year-old gentleman who's just been diagnosed with prostate cancer really need surgery if it's a slow-growing cancer? If someone's 85 years old and they're in a nursing home in a wheelchair, do they really need a stent? So I go, wow, and it took a nanosecond to split that to sales. As a salesperson, are you doing things to your customer or for them? Yeah. And the minute you do it for them, again, with that empathy, everything changes. Well, uh, well said, man, that is great analogy. Uh, Hal Becker, you're amazing. I love talking with you. I think we're gonna be friends for a long time. I, I can't so. wait to meet you in person after COVID. Uh, I, I really appreciate you doing this and uh, 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 let's talk more. Let's maybe do a, a, another chapter on this sometime down the road, okay? You got it. Okay, thank Thanks. you, brother. You got it.